Hi there, Kim Schmidt, Executive Editor of Farm Equipment here. Welcome to the latest episode of our Farm Equipment Podcast series, Our Dealer Story. In this episode, we jump back into the conversation with Stoats Equipment. Alan Stenham from the Farm Equipment staff sat down with the Rostozzi family at their Avondale, Arizona store. The dealership, originally named Arizona Machinery, was founded by Fred Elder and two partners in 1947. Diane, who's Fred's daughter, and her sons, Tom, Rob, and Teddy, share the story of how the dealership became Stoats Equipment, including how their father, Ferenc Rostozzi, a Hungarian immigrant who was a chemist, came to run the business. Ferenc passed away in 2017, but the impact he had on his family and the family business can be heard in how his family remembers him. All three sons had plans outside the dealership, but were eventually talked into coming on board by their father. We get back into the conversation talking about the relationships each of them have with each other and how their family dynamic and the way they work for what's best for the business has helped them all find success. Before we head over to the Rostozis, I wanted to thank our sponsor, HBS Systems, a multi-generational company that for over 30 years has provided leading edge systems and software technology designed specifically for ag and construction equipment dealers. Thanks for making this podcast series possible. Let's jump in and hear the rest of Stoats Equipment's story. When you got into the business, you came in and, and basically started operating with four stores. We were three. Three. Yeah. But no, I didn't come in and start operating them. Okay. I, was 20, I was 22. 22? Okay. He didn't come in and say, I'll come no. in if I can be the no. boss. All right. <laughs> he had a made-up job. Tell my title, because you had fun with that. I, don't know. I can't remember. Special I roasted yeah. him on his like 20-year anniversary with the company and dug up his old... Uh, Special review, special, pro- special, special projects manager. Special. Yeah, yeah, special, yeah. special project, quote unquote. Yeah, my first title was special projects analyst. And oh, Teddy had Teddy, <laughs> Teddy had a lot of. He's fun. the only yeah. special projects analyst the company has. Exactly, exactly. Assistant manager to the assistant, assistant manager. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so uh, um, Teddy had a lot of fun at our year end party. Calling me special. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good stuff. Yeah. With the leadership development, how do you, how do you manage? Uh, you, you guys have a massive footprint, yeah. and so how do you manage those types of programs and just your overall growth? I probably would need to give you a little bit of background before we talk about that a little bit. Sure. So. We started, our first acquisition was 1997. We picked up that little store in San Diego that Teddy wound up selling in a few years later. And then uh, we picked up, we had a couple in Washington for a little while. And then sort of the big move was in 2001, we bought four four owner groups and six stores up in Utah. Utah slash one of those was in Idaho. And we did that in what was, I would say today, just a pure fit of youthful stupidity on my part because um, we we did that those four acquisitions we did over four months so in fact we negotiated them all kind of at the same time and then give ourselves time we set it up so that one closed in february one closed in march one closed in april one closed in june that's awful to think about i know it's so uh-huh. stupid um so so we went so we were six stores and then we bought six more in four months yeah four different owner groups, all competitors prior to us buying them out. Um, so we went, we took over two stores 30 days later, we took over the next score 30 days later, we took over the next two, six days later, we took over the last one. And basically that was kind of how it worked. We went to those first two stores and we counted inventory and we taught them you know, our way of doing things. And then we left and went to the next store and we did the same thing. But we, you know, those first two stores basically were left 
kind of on their own because we were busy with the other stuff. So, so that whole thing really was terrible. I mean, it was a if, learning experience. If you wanted, to, if you wanted to do like a classic MBA class on how not to do things, mm. that, that would be Exhibit A. So talk a little bit terrible. about what what went wrong. What, what were some of the things that were <laughs> How much time do you have? <laughs> yeah. it'd, be short, it'd be shorter if we talked well, about what went right. right. Yeah, yeah. You know what? Even the, uh, keep it there. The only thing that went right was um, we were ahead of the curve on dealer consolidation. And so it got us ahead of the curve on dealer consolidation. <laughs> that was about the only thing that went right. It took... Um, Years. The years. How many years was it before? It was, I think it was, five, it was five years. Five years later, of those stores struggling and being poor performers, and um, that we fired the general manager and we took five people from here, traveled up there. Basically, we sat one in each store, roughly at the time, and tried to figure out how to turn it around. And that would be. The, th- the positive thing that came out of it was um, a lot of the culture that we have very clearly defined today came out of the learning of that crucible of failure. Um, so we had this idea that there was a connection between um, customer satisfaction and profitability. And we had this idea that there was a connection between how good you are at your processes and customer satisfaction. And we had this idea that um, people drive the processes. So we sort of we were sort of in the process of formulating, I guess maybe, well, what we call today our circle of success. But I don't know, we wouldn't have called it that at the time. Thought it was sort of linear. Our circle of failure. <laughs> <laughs> our death spiral. <laughs> but in that in that process, so we spent I think between. The five of us who were traveling, we spent between six and nine months going up there three or four days a week every week to try to figure things out. Um, we kind of dialed in the, what it is now today, the circle of success. We kind of got that figured out. Um, and then I think the other thing we learned in the process was, I don't, given our footprint, back to your question about our broad geography, when, when my dad or my grandfather were running this business and it was three stores here in the Phoenix area, then the culture really was pretty much my dad's personality or my grandfather's personality. And they could be in another store in 30 minutes and they could be in every store every week. And, you know, so you could kind of drive things by sheer force of personality. And I think that's basically what they did. Um, you know, then when we were 12 stores or today when we're 25 stores, you know, even with three of us, we can't be at every store very frequently. Um, and they're far apart, so they're not easy to get to. So if something goes wrong in Casper, I can't be there in 30 minutes. Um, so, so if you can't do it through sheer force of personality, you have to come up with a different thought process. And the only two that I can think of are, one, you come up with a rule book and say, here's all the rules on how we do things. And we just all laugh about you know, how complicated that rule book would be if you actually tried to write it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the other one is that you have just a core philosophy, which is sort of the one we've chosen. So we have a simple core philosophy, and we try really hard to make that core philosophy part of who we are, not just the three of us, but all of us, the 500 of us, that everybody knows the core philosophy. Um, and 
just to be real quick, it's five core values, quality, integrity, loyalty, caring, community, the vision to be the best home deal in the world, um, our circle of success that people drive processes, drive customer satisfaction, drive profitability, drive growth, and then comes growth comes back around to people because you need more people. Communication is like the hub of the wheel. If we communicate effectively, it all works like it's supposed to. And then the final piece is how we present ourselves to our customers. Basically, Mr. Customer, we're here to make your life easier. And we're going to do it three ways, long-term relationships, flexible solutions, and uptime availability. And so the basically the pitch to the employees is if you have to make a decision, you have to figure something out, as long as it's consistent with our core values and consistent with something the best company in the world would do and consistent with making life easier for a customer, you made the right decision. You don't have to call me. You don't have to call Rob. You don't have to call Teddy. You can do it. But I would say that all sounds good, but you can share all that information with the new store you acquire and leave, and it's not going to go well. So I think yeah. one of the key things was we always like to have somebody from Stoats Equipment sitting in any new store on a somewhat permanent basis to help make sure that as decisions are made every day and as things flow every day with customers, with fellow employees, that they're sort of living the culture the right way and that they help make sure that decisions are thought about the right way, discussion, you know, communication is being executed the right way. Because otherwise, you can talk about those things, but you don't know what it really means and how we really live it um, unless somebody who's been living it for years can be in that store and help make sure that they learn how to live it. That's really important. Well, you just got to – it's all about the people. I mean, you got to have the right people, right? So, I mean, I feel like if you go to those two stores and leave, right. you got to be able to see that. Right? Do we have the right people on board? And I feel like once – I'm sure once you guys all went up there, then you started to figure out where changes needed to be made and – yeah, well, so obviously we went up there and we thought we changed stuff, but then we left after 30 days, those first two stores, and everybody was still in place. It was all the same management. It was all the same people. So I'm sure after 60 days, they were doing everything the way they'd always done it. Yeah. Because why, why would they do it differently? Yeah. 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 Oh, just one little story sort of to Rob's point. Um, I remember in one store we took over, they had a um, they had a wash bay that was outside the shop but to turn on the steam cleaner, you had, there was a switch on the inside of the shop. You had to be inside the shop to turn it on, and you had to go outside the shop to use it and vice versa. But there was no door right there, so you had to walk all the way around. There was a long walk just to turn on and off the cleaner. Um, so the guy from our dealership who was there helping with the transition saw that, and he was talking to the service manager, and he said, hey, you know, how much do you think it would cost to put a door in here? And the guy was like, you know, you know, probably a few hundred bucks. He said, well, you know, how much do you think it costs to have a tech walk around the whole building every time where it turns the off? Well, it's a lot of money. So, you know, why don't we, do you think we should put the door in? And the guy was hesitant, but finally agreed, yeah, we should probably put in a door. So a month later, they were doing that same walk around. There was no door there. And, the, and our guy was like, well, how come you didn't put the door in? And there, the got the service manager at the time was like, "Well, I wasn't sure you really wanted me to." And he just, he just came. His the prior ownership had been don't spend just, any money. You just don't spend any money. Yeah. And so even though even though we had told him, even though we told him, had <laughs> yeah. gone through the math, you know, basically and said, "Hey, it makes a lot of sense to spend the money." This is a trap. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 
I yeah. know what you're doing here. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're just looking for a reason to get me in trouble. <laughs> yeah. So so to Rob's point, you know, that's why it's so impactful to have a Stoats person sitting there. Because if yeah. the Stoats person's sitting there, then the next day... The so, door's put in. Yeah. Exactly. Well, at the end of the day, like Teddy said, it's all about the people. And it is. And it, and it starts with the leader. So I think we had a general manager up there in Utah for a while, but we hired the general manager from the outside. So even the general manager didn't have our culture and understand how we do business. And I think if you do get a good leader in any store and they do understand, then everything can flow very smoothly. But, but, but to put a leader in that doesn't know the culture and expect that they're going to ingrain the culture you want, uh, I don't know. That's not a very good point. So I have a question. So when you acquired the Utah stores, I remember it very well. Um, did you have a really identified culture at the time? No. Okay, that's what I thought. No, that was one yeah. of the learnings of the yeah. whole process. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm really glad you asked that because I actually wanted to circle back on that. Um, and then we didn't. And that was one of the things we sort of learned in the whole process mm -hmm. was, um, you know, we, I personally totally took for granted all that kind of stuff because I thought when we first started growing through acquisitions, we'd been running three stores for our history, basically. So I thought, you know, we know how to run multiple stores. Our history, 50 years, yeah. basically. <laughs> yeah, we've been doing it. Yeah, yeah, we've been doing it for 50 years. We know what we're doing running multiple stores. Um, but what I didn't realize was how much ingrained institutional knowledge there was that wasn't written down anywhere everybody just knew you know and you there were some things you just didn't do because you knew they would make parents mad um and so you just didn't do them and but but you can't you can't sort of the whole learning process was which i should have been smart enough to know without having to Took you a long time. Took me a heck of a long time. I'm as slow as you are. I kept asking Ferris, so how's Utah doing? <laughs> said, uh, Christmas get together. Yeah. Mom, you're like, how much longer are we going to be doing this? <laughs> yeah. You guys, this the thing. The thing yeah. was that you can't you can't translate culture if you don't know how to talk about it. And so, if the culture is just this is just how we do things, then that works really good here because everybody knows how we do things, but it doesn't work anywhere else. Because you can't go anywhere else and say, well, just do it the way we do it. Well, how is that? Well, I don't know. I can't actually articulate it. Um, um, so it was de defining it was one of the major lessons. I can't imagine and then your dad talking about a culture. I mean, about his That would, that <laughs> would have been his style. But this reminds me of what you're saying. I don't know why it's making me laugh because it reminds me of a marriage. When you get married, I don't know how you all were, but... When you get married, you have certain assumptions. I mean, oh, yeah. you grew up in your family, and you just kind of assume everybody's kind of similar. You know, mm -hmm. it's, and you realize that it's not like that not at so all. so much. Once you move in together, things yeah. are a little different. Yeah. 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 I have a, you think that Hungarian immigrant <laughs> brought up exactly the same way. <laughs> <laughs> I always used to say, I've said so many times, it was a great time to grow up in the 50s. It was awesome, unless you were in Hungary. Unless you're in a war torn <laughs> Eastern Europe. Parents might disagree. Yeah. We'll get back to the Stoat story in a minute, but first I wanted to say thanks to HBS Systems, the sponsor of this series. To learn more about HBS's equipment dealership management systems, visit www.hbssystems.com. 
After that, head over to farm-equipment.com for the latest industry news. Now back to the story of Stoats Equipment and how leadership transitioned from parents to Tom, Rob, and Teddy. The, the leadership development program, I mean, you guys are, you know, well ahead of the curve on this. And, you know, as it's, uh, people notice, uh, I think, you know, that people are looking to what you guys are doing in terms of this leadership development. You, you had to have some kind of precursor to that. There had to be something that was kind of swelling or swirling around in your head or some things that were influencing you and, and the group um, to go, okay, this this is what we need to do. So. What were some of the influences there? To we were twelve stores, basically coming into the two thousand and nine timeframe, and then you know the market crashed, and then um, we got the opportunity to buy a couple stores in Wyoming. And when we sat down to talk about doing that acquisition in our leadership team meeting, Rob actually asked the question. He said, "Okay, so do we have the people to do it?" Back to how important it is to have a Stotes person sitting in those stores. And so I got up at the whiteboard and we started as a group brainstorming, well, we could have this person do this and then this person could backfill that role. And by the time we were finished, we had someone to go run those stores and we had someone to backfill their spot and so on and so on. And all we needed to do was we needed to hire an entry level, someone from the parts warehouse here in the Avondale store and everything else kind of dominoed, which was beautiful. Yeah. From a, yeah, from a leadership succession planning thing, it was awesome. But then we bought those stores, and then a year later, we bought the seven more stores from our neighbor to the south. And then we were, it was pretty obvious, pretty soon we are going to be buying the two more stores in southeastern Utah to kind of make all of our, what were at the time, three separate companies come together into one geography. So we went from having 12 stores, having great depth so that we could handle a two-store acquisition, to having 23 stores in a couple of years. And, obviously, and with those last two acquisitions, we got no leadership. So all the leadership was either family and left or employees, but everybody left. So this, let's say, store managers and above, except for Mike in, in Colorado. But um, So we went from being 12 stores with great depth to blowing through that depth in a two-store acquisition to being really, really skinny at 23 stores, way too thin as far as leadership. And, you know, when you're at 12 stores, you have to, if you're going to, if the average manager stays in their job for 12 years, you know, you need one store manager a year, you need one parts manager, one service manager. Well, when you have 23, you can basically double that. You know, just for own internal turnover, you're gonna need twice as many. And we don't have any depth anymore. Uh, and at some point, you would hope that you get to the point where you can keep growing. So you have to be not just generating your own replacements, but more than enough to handle your own replacements. So that just became kind of a, a bottleneck, bottleneck issue for us as a company. Um, so we did two things to try to address it. One, we started trying to hire management trainees, co- fresh college graduates to come in that could be leaders of the future. And in the process of um, interviewing folks for that role, one of them asked me a great question. He asked me first what the job was going to be like, and I kind of went through what we had intended for, that, for them to do. And then he said, that's cool. So then what would the formal training be you know, outside of the on-the-job training? And I thought to myself, that's a great question, and I need to have a good answer for it. And right now I don't, but I'm going to give you, a, I gave him a good answer. I said, we're going to have this leadership development program, but we didn't have a leadership development program. So I had to get to work on a leadership development program. So it was, it was basically the inspiration was, hey, we, we're way too thin. We have to solve this leadership problem that we have as a company, number one. And number two, um, 
it makes sense to have a formal program, a formal training program, not just on the job training for folks. Um, so that, that was the inspiration. I know that, you know, Joey and uh, what you guys are doing with precision and irrigation, uh, you guys have, um, you know, emerged as, as a leader in that realm. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about that, how that's been developing. Um, you know, maybe what Joey's role or, or role isn't uh, in, in that development and, and um, yeah, and talk about some of that. Okay. Yeah. So um, I mentioned before that first um, effort to hire management trainees. So one of our first management trainees we hired was actually my son, Joey. He was um, he just graduated from college in 2012, which was when we were looking to hire our first crop. Um, and he had decided he wanted to come back and work here after college. Um, so we hired him and he started out doing precision ag for us, which I think he was our first precision ag employee in the company. Um, so he, the precision ag thing for us was always a little bit challenging because while Deere was getting into the technology and pushing their dealers to get into the technology and we as a dealership always bought into everything that they were wanting to do, meaning in theory, their ideas were great. We thought their ideas were great mm-hmm. and still think their ideas are great and fully support it. The challenge for us is we're not corn and soybean country and all that technology is largely focused on corn and soybean country and we're hay and dairy country. It's been a challenge for us to try to figure out how to make the theory of precision ag work in the reality of um, hay country instead of the reality of corn and soybean country. So, so Joey was our first precision ag employee. Um, one of the things we learned, one of our early experiences with that was uh, we do a lot of business with the Mormon church. And the Mormon church, they are very good negotiators. Um, and so they, um, <laughs> they, they bargain hard every year. And we, we, we traditionally have traded with them almost every year. Um, so... They got the new technology on their equipment, and at the end of the year, we were analyzing the data the equipment had generated, and we noticed that 25% of the hours they put on their tractors were idle time hours. Um, and so we had the brilliant idea that, hey, here's a way for us to help the church save money without taking money out of our pocket. Um, and we trade with them on a dollars per hour basis. So if we could help the church reduce their idle time hours, we could reduce the hours that they were putting on the equipment, we could save them money when they trade with us, but we aren't, weren't taking margin dollars out of our pockets to do it. It's kind of a win-win. So we did the analysis. We sat down with the church and we showed them the analysis and said, hey, we think we have this great idea. And the church's response basically was, hey, that's really cool. Um, just tell us who was driving what they were doing when we were generating the idle time, and then we can, then we can manage it. And what we had was a report that said, you know, over the course of the year, this, these are the totals. Well, the, the information that the equipment was generating didn't tell us who was driving, and it didn't tell us what they were doing. We just knew you were driving a tractor, but we didn't know if you were pulling a disc or a plow or a planter or a more conditioner or what you were doing. Um, so, so Joey had this idea that basically we need to come up, we need to figure out how to collect the context around what the equipment's doing to help make the data that the equipment's generating more meaningful and so that you can make better decisions with it. Um, so... So basically this idea that we now call LEAF sort of germinated out of that experience. Um, and the, the original idea was that we were going to try to download out of Deere's 
databases every night what the equipment had done the day before and then present it to the farm manager in a usable format and then then they would know you know um, what it was doing and they could manage their idle time and that first year we tried to do something like that it was kind of funny because it turned out deer didn't have apis at the time that we could access so we had some poor guys that were spending the evenings downloading into spreadsheets deer's data and then entering the spreadsheets into our data systems. <laughs> it was a total hamster on a wheel solution. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what we found was that one farm we were working with over three weeks of planting, when they started planting, they we had the 25% idle time benchmark. And so they set a goal of getting their idle time down to 20%. And within a few days, they had somebody hit 18%. And so then they got ambitious and they moved the goal to 15%. And a few days later, they had someone hit 13%. And so then they got ambitious and they moved the goal to 10%. And by the end, three weeks of planting season, the last days of planting season, they were averaging 8% idle time. Um, so from the perspective of that being um, you know, like a viable software package for us, there was no way because we had all these, we had the hamsters on the wheel doing all, the, oh, yeah. doing all this <laughs> manual data entry in the background. The with you into the, yeah. 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 So from a product perspective, the product itself didn't work, but the idea uh-huh. sort of seemed like it had a whole lot of potential. Um, so that germinated into more um, leaf efforts. And so basically what leaf wound up doing, the core of the idea was they put, um, beacons on everything on the farm as far as the equipment, so the tractors and all the implements, and they put software on an iOS device, iPhone or iPad, and that iPhone or iPad goes in the cab of the tractor or the combine or wherever, whatever you're driving. Um, The software picks up the beacons when they're close enough. So if you're in a tractor, the software picks up what tractor you're in. Um, If you back up and hook up to a planter, it knows the planter that you're hooked up to. And then when you're operating in a field, it basically knows what you're doing. And they came up with algorithms so they can actually, they know, the the computer knows you're planting or the computer knows you're tilling or whatever. And now you you have the context to go with the data that the equipment itself is generating. um, So you can make better decisions about managing your farm. So that's basically the gist of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. From a product perspective, I think they've had a lot of success and we've found a lot of great insights to help our customers be more effective operators, more efficient, uh, make better business decisions, et cetera. Um, So yeah, that's basically what they've been working on. Yeah, okay. And and is that still part of the Stoats umbrella or is that a separate? It is, it is. It's just changing a little bit recently. Um, We... When we started doing it, we thought this would be something that could be interesting on a large scale. Um, and it's turned out that it's not as interesting on a large scale as we thought it would be. Mm. Yeah. So at this point, we're still doing it, but it's now it's becoming more of a, um, a unique proprietary product for us and a couple of other dealers we work with, um, as opposed to us trying to you know, do it around the, around the world or anything yeah. like that. A quick break in the action to invite you to our annual Dealership Mind Summit. Check out this unique management event for farm equipment dealers only at www.dealershipmindssummit.com. It's a quick hit, two-day mastermind style summit that connects you to your peers of all colors. Come participate and learn from the very best minds in the ag machinery dealer world 
all seeking solutions to your same challenges. www.dealershipmindssummit.com. Um, anything you guys want to share, you know, again, about your experience, maybe, maybe if you've got some, uh, some words of wisdom, um, to, to share with, with other dealers that are looking at major growth and, and, uh, expanding their footprint and, um, you know, or anything you guys want to share overall. Just... I would have, I would have one thought I would share, but it wouldn't be around that. Mm-hmm. It would be around, um, just the family dynamic. Yeah. So I think we, when I, we, you know, we don't feel like we're unusual because like you said, you kind of grow up and this is what you know. And so this is, you think this is normal. And so I think we kind of feel like our family relationships are normal. But when I talk to other people, I realize that our family relationships are not normal. The fact that, you know, three of us brothers now work together and are very happy working together and worked with our dad for a long time before he passed. And it was all, you know, good and comfortable and healthy. Um, I think... I think one of the reasons that that works well, um, and I'm reminded, um, Teddy just moved into my dad's old office just in the last couple of weeks. And so we've actually, my dad passed away two years ago, but we've sort of been going through the stuff from his office recently. And just the other day I found a letter that my mom had written to my uncle back in February of 1975 when they were thinking about my dad coming down to here to run this. And so the decision had not been made and it was my mom sort of laying out to her brother, her thoughts on the subject. And, and the thing I really liked and appreciated in the letter was, um, it was calm and rational and thoughtful and selfless. It was about, Hey, you know, Tom, my brother, don't worry about me. And don't worry about our family. You know, we'll be fine no matter what. You just focus on making the best decision you can for you and for the company. And, and we'll be happy with whatever decision you make. You just make the best decision you can and we'll support you. And, and if you want to do it, here's some thoughts on how we think it might work. But, but it, was, it was basically a very selfless, thoughtful um, letter. And I think, I think that one of the reasons that our relationships have worked so well for so long has been, it's never about me. It's never about her. It's never about him. It's always about what's the best, what's the best for the collective. Um, and I just think, I think that family dynamics can get into big trouble when it becomes about me. And, and I think as long as it's not about me, it's about the collective and what's best for everybody um, and taking everybody's interests into the thought process. I think you know, it just greatly increases your chances of being successful. I don't know if you'd want to add to that. Tom just showed me that letter today. I hadn't um, actually thought about it I, and I actually don't remember writing it. <laughs> but I was pretty happy when I read it. <laughs> you did. <laughs> I did okay. Yeah. <laughs> pretty cool. And, uh, when he could, gave it to me, I was scared. I first thought, I'm like, well, what, when did I write? I thought it says, Dear Tommy. I thought I was writing to my son. <laughs> <laughs> what did I say to you? <laughs> he's, like, no, he's like, no, it's to your brother. It's 1975. I'm like, oh. <laughs> 
Good deal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you have something, Teddy? I was going to say, you know, the only time I've ever questioned Tom, I just remember the time of going through the Utah acquisition and the struggles. And at the time, we had this core of these three stores in Arizona that was just a well-oiled machine. And the deal that we'd acquired at the South and the dealers that we acquired in the North, everything that we acquired outside of that struggled. I remember talking to Rob around that time. I'm like, what is Tom? Like, why are we doing this? Like, why, if everything else is struggling, but the core, like, why can't we just focus and why are we bought? And I know like in your aspiring leaders, you talk about, or you used to talk about that, uh, that store at the mall that was like the leather yeah, store yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah, it was a, very successful store, but never grew just this one and then soon got acquired. And now looking back this day and age with the consolidation of the deer dealerships and fewer and bigger, I mean, it's a good thing we did that because if we were just a little three store dealership, we'd be, we'd be gone, Yeah, you know? So I'm glad that that happened and it was a painful process, but at the end of the day, it was the right thing to do. So they always say you learn through your struggles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, there's no question the best lessons come from the failures. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like the, that whole um, experience, there's a lot of good and bad that came out of it. So, yeah. Yeah. A lot, a lot yeah. of lessons learned. I, I do look back on it sometimes and I wonder what my dad was thinking when he was letting me do stuff like that. <laughs> he basically, I think that's the interesting thing. He never complained about it. I no. mean, he never, no. He, he always said, because I used to ask him all the time, how's Utah doing? You know, And he always said, Tom wanted to do it, and he doesn't do it, and I agree. I accepted it. It's sort of like, you wanted to do it. He wasn't, for, for Ference and me, we didn't need Utah. You know, why? We're fine. It's like you're saying, we're fine. But Tom was young and ambitious, and, and, and Ference was like, I, I told him, okay, and so... I feel like that was always a nice part of the relationship for you. Just with dad, it was, they could always talk about things, have a good conversation about things. At the end of the day, they're at peace with whatever decision, you know, it was a good, great resource. Yeah, but Tom, uh, yeah. Tom, this Tom always had his ducks in a row. Cause Ferenc would say something like, well, why, why do you want to do it? And then Tom would pull up his computer and say, well, dad, when you were my age, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> this is what you were doing. This is exactly the same. <laughs> we, we, we had, it, at times it could be frustrating, but in the end, it was kind of a fun dynamic with him that um, I would come to him and say, hey, we've got this opportunity. I really think we should give serious consideration to doing this. And usually it was making a significant investment, buying another dealership or something like that. And his first response to me always would be, no, 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 we don't want to do that. What we really want to do is get to the point where we have no debt. We want to you know, get the bank paid off, get this thing as safe as possible. That's really what we want to do. And what I learned was that that was just that it, it, it was almost like the classic old time insurance company where you just deny the claim the first time just out of hand and you just see if they're serious. You know, I think that's kind of what he was doing was I'm going to say no. And then if you're serious, you're going to come back to me with with an argument. Um, and so I would have never gone to him in the first place if I wasn't serious. So I always came back <laughs> with my arguments. Yeah. And at one point I was. I was telling him one of my arguments for doing this, whatever it was, was that, you know, our balance sheet was just way too conservative at the time. And I think, you know, our, our equity was over 50%, which is just kind of silly. Um, 
So, so I, so I tell, I say that to him and he says to me, he says, well, 50% is always where I wanted it to be. You know, we're just right where we should be. And I thought, well, I don't think so. But fortunately for me, I had built a spreadsheet that had our financial data going back to 1971. <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious how he so, operates. So, so I put together a chart of our equity over time. And what was fascinating was our equity bounced between 30 and 40. And every time it would tick up over 40 one year, it would drop back down to 32 the next year. And so I showed that to him. I said, look, Dad, I said, here's how it actually worked over time. Um, every time our equity hit 40, you went out and you did something. <laughs> uh, and I said, so, and so the, the healthy conversation we had, which I think we both um, came to understand was the difference between us was just a place in life difference. Yeah. You know? yeah. He, he'd made his money. He didn't need to make any more money and he didn't need more work. He was, all he really wanted to do was make sure that we didn't screw up what we had, which totally makes sense. But, but I'm, I was a generation younger. Mm -hmm. I want to be out doing something. And I did tell him at one point, I said, dad, I just want you to try to remember what you were trying to do when you were 40. Because when you were 40, you weren't thinking like this. And actually I have the proof right here. (laughs) You weren't thinking like this. Um, so yeah, so he always, we always worked it out. You had kind of asked the question about like succession or what, what's happening in the future. I think it's a pretty cool story how dad kind of passed along to you, how it was kind of like gradual oh. steps and his goal of what your impression would be that you would really never know. Yeah. Yeah. He came to me. I don't even remember what year it was, but he came to me and he said, um, I'm going to start myself on a retirement trajectory. And if I do it well, then 10 years from now, somebody's going to wake up around here and say, hey, whatever happened to Ference? Does he still work here? <laughs> um, and so he did. And he, after he told me that, he started playing golf on Wednesday mornings. And so he didn't come into the office Wednesday mornings. And then a year later, he switched his golf schedule to Tuesday and Thursday mornings. And he took two mornings off. And basically, he went a half a day a year until he got to the point where he never stopped coming in until he wasn't. Until he really could. Until he really yeah. wasn't physically capable. Um, but at the end, he would he would work from ten to twelve when he was in town, and they traveled quite a bit. So he never got below that amount of work. But but basically, it was a very gradual process. And so people will ask me, you know, when did I take over? And I sincerely tell them, I have no idea. <laughs> I know it was sometime after we had that conversation. Yeah. Um, and I know it was sometime, you know, before 2007. But so it's probably somewhere in the early 2000s. But I, I honestly, I couldn't tell you. It's pretty cool. It was so gradual. Yeah. Well, it's like little things like inviting you to go to a dealer group meeting or a meeting with the bank. And then yeah. all of a sudden one day, dad can't go to the meeting. Right. right. It's just yeah. like this very gradual yeah, just Before you one know thing it, at a time. Kind of, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think you should sit in on the bank meetings with me. Now, why don't you sign the loan docs this time? Yeah. Oh, I can't make the bank meeting now. Yeah, just all. Very uh, another thing that helped, I think, is that I think Tom and Ferenc both think very similarly. They're both logical, rational, numbers oriented. Yeah, our we we never disagreed on the long term objective. That was always the same. And eat, I mean, we agreed on it like that. The question was always style and getting there. And I think that was, again, a generational 
Uh-huh. I think my dad was more like the general that she mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. His approach was, well, if that's where we're going to go, just go tell everybody that's what we're going to do. He's always like, Tom has to have these big committee <laughs> meetings. And he's like, when I make the decision, I make the decision, we go. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure how well that would have flown yeah. today. Yeah, yeah. And, and my style is much more... Hey, let's get everybody involved in the process, and and if we do it well, then they'll decide we're going there, as opposed to me telling them that we're going there. Um, but what, yeah, like when you say like when it's a small three store dealership, then the the culture is of the yeah. guy running the ship, you know. Yeah, yeah. But when it's a bigger group, then things change. Must been fun. Yeah, that was that was really good. I very much enjoyed all of these stories and my time. Thanks so much to Tom, Rob, Teddy, and Diane for taking the time to sit down and share their story with us. And another thanks to HBS Systems for making this podcast possible. I'd love to get your feedback on the new series, so drop me a line at kschmidt at lessigermedia.com. You can subscribe to the podcast via Spotify, iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, or TuneIn Radio. This will ensure you're alerted as soon as new episodes are made. Thanks for joining us for this one-on-one conversation with the Rostozzi family. Until next time, I'm Kim Schmidt, signing out of the Our Dealer Story Podcast.